and I was getting nervous. My hands were getting a little clammy. I'd never asked anybody that, uh, but it just felt like my intuition was that's the right thing to do. And she said, yes, I'm a prayerful person. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine. We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Shiva. How are you doing? Hi, Nicole. I'm doing pretty well today. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm so excited that we are starting our first podcast. We have an amazing guest today. We're going to be talking about spiritual care and healthcare. And just thinking about my own kind of spirituality. I think I'm still trying to figure out how spirituality fits in my life and also fits into my future clinical practice. And I'd love to hear about your journey with spirituality and how you have learned to incorporate it into your patient care. Thanks for asking that, Nicole. As I think about my own journey, when I was a medical student and going forward, I really didn't know what spirituality was, and it wasn't something that I was introduced to at all in my education or my training. But I did know that I wanted to, as I found myself face-to-face with a lot of suffering in the human beings that were in beds and in the ER and wherever I was um, as a student learning, I saw so much suffering and pain, and I didn't think it was enough to just do the medical part of what we did and what we were learning. And I only knew instinctively that I wanted the person in front of me to feel connected, to not feel alone, if possible, to feel hope, if possible, to find meaning, if possible, to introduce ideas of how to cope and get through this, which is kind of attending to the deeper part of the person experiencing the illness as opposed to just the illness itself. And I only understood that that my wanting to connect to that deeper part of the person, later I learned the word might be, there are many words for it, you could just say connecting. Um, but, but another word would be connecting to the spirit. And there it kind of comes out to the idea of spirituality. And so there's a broader name for it that I started to learn over time. But I really didn't know this when I was a student. I've only journeyed into that. And I think that came from that deep sense of wanting to connect. And that leads me to this wonderful person that we know and has become a friend of ours in the podcast, Dr. Bruce Feldstein. He is an adjunct clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. And after specializing in emergency medicine and practicing for 19 years, an injury had led him to become a visiting scholar at the Stanford Center for Biomedical Ethics, and he completed his chaplaincy training in 2000 at Stanford's Clinical Pastoral Education Program. Um, He developed and teaches an award-winning curriculum on spirituality and well-being for medical students and faculty at Stanford School of Medicine. Welcome to our podcast, Bruce. Thank you so much, Shiva, and hi, Nicole. Hi, so nice to meet you. Well, yeah. welcome, welcome to the podcast. Um, we- great. <laughs> I love what you're doing. I really love what you're doing. I mean, the fact that look, Shiva, you and I are, we've been doing this a long time, and we've got joy. 
That's crazy, uh, isn't it? That we still have joy. Isn't it? Look at <laughs> what is wrong with us. <laughs> so, I mean, that yeah. look at the, what's the message? It's like, wow, you know, you could do this and still have joy. Well, we're excited to have you as our inaugural episode. Um, we wanted to start off each episode by asking our guests to, in short, share a meaningful moment from early on in their training that was impactful or was a particularly formative experience. Mm. You know, that's a great question. And it makes me pause because I have two, uh, two careers, if you will, within my overarching career. So I want to choose uh, something that impacted me at the at, toward the end of my career as an emergency medicine physician, and that was instrumental in my becoming a chaplain. Because when I tore two discs in my back, I was helping a friend move some furniture and tried for about eight months. And the spine surgeon who I was referred to looked to me and said, doctor, would you like to know what the MRI shows? And I said, yes. And he said, it shows you need to find a new work style. I love that, by the way. <laughs> he didn't say, oh, you have degenerative disc disease and internal disc disruption and look at the, uh, the, the shape of this and that. And No, he got right to the, the central concern, the chief concern, you know, what mattered most in the moment. I really appreciate about him. And then the question was, well, what's next? And I wasn't sure. Let me share it by way of a, of a story within a story. About three or four months after I injured the back, I was able to continue back in emergency medicine, but only at about two or three hours at a time. And I'd have to take breaks. The pain would be too much. And I remember one night on the overnight shift, we had double coverage. And Dr. Costco, the chief of the department was with me, uh, pulls me aside at a quiet moment and says, so Feldstein, what do you think you might do if you can't continue in emergency medicine? And I thought, you know what? That's a fair question. The writing was on the wall. And do you know what? I just allowed the first thing that popped to mind to say to him, and that's the story I want to share with you. I said, Eric, do you remember that day? When was it? About six months ago, you signed out to me, Mrs. Martinez, that lady with the, she had the colon cancer and she was back with recurrent nausea and vomiting and dehydration. And you said, you know, maybe that's due to an increased intracranial pressure. Maybe we ought to get a CT and just rule that out. I said, let me tell you what happened. We got the CT result and it showed no increased intracranial pressure, but there were multiple metastases scattered across the brain. And the Zofran that you gave her was working. I went in to check on her. She was keeping fluid down. Her blood chemistries looked good. I was all set to send her to follow up with her regular doctor the next day. But do you know what she said to me when I walked in? She said, doctor, what was the result of that brain test? And I... I wasn't first going to tell her because, I mean, this is pretty serious news. I was going to let her oncologist tell her, but how can I not tell her? And I pull up a chair and I sit down at this moment. I said, mm -hmm. Mrs. Martinez, the test shows that the cancer has spread to your brain. There's no increased uh, pressure on it, and that's a good thing, but it has spread to your brain. And before I could even have another thought, her face turned white, like the paint on the, the wall. I always felt there was something I could say or do, you know, right down to the last moment to help someone. But what could I possibly say? I said, Mrs. Martinez, what's your reaction? And she said, it's a death sentence. And you know what? I couldn't disagree with her. And then I thought, now what could I say? 
I can't say, well, I know how you feel because I'm not on her side of her eyelids. So I couldn't go there. In that moment, I saw she's wearing a cross. And I remember a story that Rachel Remen, one of my teachers, said about a doctor who prayed with a patient. And in that moment, I knew that's what I had to do. Now, remember, I'm sharing the story with you, but I'm also sharing the story because I'm in the emergency room at two o'clock in the morning with Dr. Koskill, who's saying, what do you think you might do if you can't continue? And then he says, well, what happened? I said, well, Mrs. Martinez, uh, would you like to have a prayer together? And I was getting nervous. My hands were getting a little clammy. I'd never asked anybody that, uh, but it just felt like my intuition was that's the right thing to do. And she said, yes, I'm a prayerful person. And I said, I thought so because of the cross on your neck. And then I said, well, let it, let's have a prayer. And so I didn't know what to do. We, we took hands. I said, you know, it's, it's sort of like, well, what would they do on TV? You know, we take hands, we, we bow our heads. I'm waiting for her to begin. Only she's waiting for me to begin. And then I said, oh, so how's the prayer go? And Nicole, I don't know about you, but they didn't teach me this in medical school, the University of Michigan. You know, uh, they did not go over prayer. They did not have that a class. No, for no, that. no, no. And they also didn't teach me this in Hebrew school. And I'm sitting across from her. I'm from Detroit. She's from Mexico City. But here we are joined together. So I think, how does the prayer go? Well, you kind of acknowledge the God or some higher power. You ask for something, say thank you and go home. So that's what we did. I said, God, you who are the great healer. And then she starts to repeat after me. And we make our way through it. We make our way through it. Be with us in our time of need. Provide comfort. Do what is right and best. Thank you for hearing our prayer. And she says, thank you for hearing our prayer. And then she's hold, she continues to hold on. And I thought, now what? So I didn't say anything. And she starts to say a prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. Well, I knew this prayer, so I could hold on with Mrs. Martinez and, and say a few phrases along with her. And then when I didn't know anymore, I could just give a, mm -hmm, a little squeeze. And, and she seemed to like that. And then she went on to say a prayer in Spanish. But it was a prayer I, I know to St. Jude, who I went home and Googled. It was the patron saint for the hopeless and the destitute. And then after that prayer, there was a special quality of silence that filled the room can almost feel it. It had a velvety sense to it. And I could feel my back just kind of tingle. And we opened eyes and now she's looking right at me. And I'm remember, I'm telling this story to Eric in the emergency room. She's looking right at me and the color has fully returned to her face. And spilling out of her eye was a tear coming down her cheek. And she said, thank you, doctor thank you, in a way like I had never heard or received a thank you like that ever before. And I knew in that moment I had done the right thing. By the way, I walked out of the room, and in the very next moment, I thought to myself, what did I just do? I just prayed with someone. I think maybe this is illegal. Isn't there a separation between church and state? Oh my gosh, what happens if I get reported to uh, peer review and quality improvement? And then in the next moment, I thought I am head of peer review and quality improvement. <laughs> and so Eric, who's listening to the whole thing, laughed. 
you know, I'm a clinical professor. We're, we're training the Stanford residents and all the faculty, et cetera. Well, at this exact moment, a nurse came scurrying into the room like the rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. Her name is Mary and she comes from England. And just like out of nowhere, and she takes my shirt sleeve and she goes, oh, Dr. Feldstein, Dr. Feldstein, I had the funniest dream about you last night. I dreamt you were a vicar wearing a yarmulke, <laughs> like that, and then off she goes. <laughs> well, at that moment, Eric and I both just sat there with our jaw hanging. Now, Eric, like me, is a very scientific and irrational guy. This is completely unexplainable. This is more than just a coincidence, you know. This is what uh, Carl Jung would call a synchronicity. How does she know? And how would she have a dream about this very thing that we're just talking about and come in at that precise moment? It's like, huh? And I felt coming out of that room, you know, like I'm standing on with a foot in two worlds, my science world, and then also this humanistic world. And it's almost like I felt like I'm surfing the corpus callosum. And I realized about myself in that moment, coming out of the room with Mrs. Martinez, that I was someone who's like standing as a bridge, a bridge which is our ethics, our service, our commitment between these worlds. You asked about a, a moment that was impactful for our career. At this moment, I didn't know that I was going to leave emergency medicine when Eric was telling me, asking me, well, what do you think you might do? And I'm recalling this story. But after the spine surgeon said, you know, you, you're gonna need to find a new work style. That story was right there. There was something about it I said, hmm, and I didn't understand it. I can't explain it. But I also learned enough about mystery. You know, there's things that happen in life that we don't understand. That doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it's irrational. It's non-rational. You know, 22 years later, I've been a chaplain and really, and, and a continuing student of mystery, of spirituality, of meaning, what it means at the bedside how it really is an essential aspect, not only of our humanity, but therefore of our medicine, of our healthcare. Like the World Health Organization declared some years ago, and I was part of a group that helped, to, helped them to form that resolution. Spiritual care is an essential component of palliative care. Bruce, I think that's such an amazing and wonderful story. And we really appreciate your sharing that about that kind of a defining moment for you in the yes. setting of your own illness and injury and feeling limitations because of your body, the inspiration came through another human being and an experience with another human being that was deep for both of you, for you and Mrs. Martinez, and that you felt that inspiration and that somehow instinct to pray with her is just so meaningful and poignant, I think. And it's not something that's really taught uh, to anybody in school, but to hear you share it, I think really validates what many of us might feel inspired to do, uh, even though it isn't taught. The attending to another person's emotional and spiritual state, which is exactly yeah. what you were doing, not only her physical state, but the rest. And maybe I might be anticipating, I'm not sure, but I, at the same time, I was also really conflicted. I took that story to Ernly Young, head of the Center for Biomedical Ethics at, the, at uh, Stanford. He said, let's put it under the ethical microscope. And that's where I discovered that I didn't have the training for it. I didn't have the background for it. But in an ethical way, I was there for her. 
I, I love I love how a moment where you really went outside your comfort zone <laughs> and it really had you discover this other side. And I wonder for a lot of providers, especially those who maybe are only spiritual, don't have a background in formal religion, they may not feel like they could be that bridge for patients and they may feel safer um, and in their comfort zone, staying on the science side and not feeling comfortable moving over and opening that door to spirituality or religion. How true. And yet, if we come to recognize as medicine has that spirituality is really a part of our healthcare, it's required to attend to that people's cultural background, their spiritual background, their religious background, however that is for them. And if we're not doing that, that we're not, you know, fulfilling our jobs. The Joint Commission says this is one of the standards. Oh, but wait a minute, they didn't teach us this. Well, maybe we need to learn that. And I know that we're teaching that in some of our classes. You, you and I were talking earlier about that study in, in Sydney. Tell me about yes. that. Yes, no, that's a great, great segue into that. So yeah, so in 2015, uh, Dr. Oliver and colleagues at the University of Sydney um, did a systematic review of over 54 studies comprising over 12,000 patients and looking at both patients and providers' understanding of whether or not they think it's appropriate for providers to bring up or ask the patient about their spiritual needs in at least some circumstances in the healthcare field. And it turns out the majority, 70.5%, felt that it was appropriate and was needed. But the study also uncovered that both providers and patients were very unclear about what are the circumstances and what is the timing to bring up these conversations and really ask patients whether they have spiritual or religious needs. So I'd love for your perspective, having been an emergency medicine physician, who it sounds like you know, had some religious background, but definitely did not feel confident in that regard. And now as a chaplain, how would you navigate and kind of thinking through our audience of healthcare professionals, how can they start prompting those conversations with patients and figure out when, when to bring it up? I love that question. May I add to that, Nicole, thank you so much for bringing that up in the question. May I just add to that as you were thinking about helping us think about how to suggest bringing it up and in what context and really maybe some specific language, Bruce, if you could help advise us about that. Also, could you talk about a little bit about what you mean by spiritual needs? Because many people equate spiritual with religious. And if you ask someone if they're spiritual, they might I've had people answer, oh, no, I don't have a religion. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that, too, about just how to broach the topic? When I started teaching our curriculum on spirituality and meaning in medicine at the medical school, there were these same kind of studies. Maybe it was uh, some of those that were then reviewed later in 2015. Gallup would do a poll of Americans, and they would say, well, how many Americans would say that they believe in God? And that's pretty strong. And I'm teaching this with a, a guy who's a Buddhist. And he would say, you know, in Buddhism, we don't have gods. But I would say, I would answer yes if Gallup called me up, because uh, I believe in a higher power or we belong to something and then that's beyond ourselves and it's transcendent. And that we're this sense of belonging or connectedness. By the way, that's one of the ingredients of what I mean when I say spirituality. I'm also thinking of spirituality in three ways. Uh, this sense of of belonging, of connectedness, that we really belong to life. We're part of it. 
to me, spirituality refers to meaning, purpose, and uh, connectedness or belonging. And Bruce, if that, before you go on, I want, I want to just interject a, one definition of spirituality just for our listeners and for all of us, maybe it, it combines what you're sharing, but uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and I, I cre- I'm receiving this from one of your papers, which is called Creating Sacred Healing Moment. Um, they defined in 2000 spirituality as the way you find meaning, hope, comfort, and inner peace in your life. Many people find spirituality through religion. Some find it through music, art, or a connection with nature. Others find it in values and principles. So when we're speaking about asking a person, do you have a spiritual foundation? Are you a spiritual person? And I love how you brought up what brings you meaning, what brings you hope, what brings you inner peace? First of all, the majority of Americans believe in God or a higher power, whether I do or not. I happen to, except on days when I don't. And then 77% of patients and doctors too think spirituality is important and that their doctors should ask about it. I'm using that word should in a careful way. And yet only 11, 15%, you know, a small number do ask. Why aren't we asking? Patients want it. And we think it's a good idea, we as physicians. So why aren't we? Because, well, we're scared. Yes. Ooh, what if I do and they say something and I don't know what to do? Well, you know, medicine is more than knowing. Medicine is more than knowing. It's also about being able to be with people mm-hmm. and to care with people. And in fact, our not knowing in a situation can be a way of joining with. If I don't, if I say to you, so, so gee, uh, Shiva, this has been really a difficult time for you. Let's say you've come into my clinics. You know, what sustains you in difficult times? Mm, I love that question. So that's the opening question. What sustains you in difficult times? And I'm listening for Mm -hmm. who are you? What is your situation? What matters for you? What matters most for you? Mm -hmm. This is about meaning. I'm listening for that. What matters most for you? Because as I enter into the room, I've prepared my attention and intention. So as I enter, may I join you in your world as it is for you and accompany you from there. That's the operative verb. May I accompany you from there. And that's the operative verb as I'm a, certainly as a chaplain doing spiritual care, or if I'm a physician attending to the aspect of spiritual care, I'm going to accompany you. And in a way that allows you to connect with your source of strength or comfort or meaning, whatever that is for you. Here's where not knowing allows us to join. So you might say, oh, you know, my um, Catholic tradition is really important to me. And I'm not Catholic. And in medicine, we think we already have to know everything about Catholic, Muslim, Sikh, and then every different denomination. And if I don't, then, oh, I don't deserve to be in the room already. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're in the room because I'm already a human being like you. And I said yes to medicine. That's it. Because of that, I belong here. Oh, I had a, a lady who was a Wiccan. And I say, Wiccan, you know, I've heard of Wiccan, but you know, I don't know much about that. How is that important to you? How does it work? Mm-hmm. So she tells me, so no, I am a student of hers. Mm-hmm. My, out of my not knowing, I become a student of hers. And it says, uh, oh, you're important to me. And I'm going to listen to you. And I'm giving you authority. And this is all good, isn't it? And so it joins us. My not knowing now joins us together. And it's also useful. So with that as a kind of background, as I'm coming into the room, the spiritual 
side. And we can even leave that word out altogether. I remember where I discovered this, I call it the chief concern, not just the chief complaint, but the chief concern. So this would be in the 90s. And I walk in, a guy comes in, uh, <clears throat> Charlie won the base, uh, we're in route, we've got a 45-year-old man who's sweaty, tachycardic, complaining of chest pain. Uh, we're at your back door, door comes out, you know, and they, they bring them in and we put in the IVs and the, the monitor and, and all of that. And then I come up to him and I say, uh, I'm Dr. Feldstein, I'm your emergency doctor and I'll take care of you here today. What prompted you to call the ambulance? He says, well, I had this terrific pain. And normally people would, you know, start doing the differential. And I say, what was it about this that prompted you to call the ambulance? He said, well, you know, I was playing tennis and suddenly I got this sharp pain. And especially when I move and breathe. And, and I remember my uncle Joe had a pain and he died of a heart attack. And I think that's what I got too. And I said, well, Joe, already from your description, it doesn't sound like a heart attack, but we're going to, you know, we're going to take a good look at that. Let me examine you, ask you some more questions. His heart rate came down, the sweatiness stopped. It turned out he had an acute muscle pain and a rib issue. And I said, ah, I've just stumbled upon something. If I can identify the chief concern, not just the chief complaint. And this is a matter of applied spirituality, isn't it? Hmm. It's about meaning. So this is, this is part of, I'll call taking a spiritual history. It's a way of being with someone. So there's the chief concern. So there's the inquiry into this. What sustains you? Do you have any spiritual or religious practices or customs that are important to you? And then you can go from there. And then there's also the way of asking. It's a way of acceptance. It has a, a feeling of belonging. I am here with you. You matter to me. You know, most patients, you make me think of something interesting, and I'd love Nicole's perspective too. I think most patients feel a little bit bad that they're imposing their time our, on our time. I <laughs> felt that many times as, as physicians, many patients feel a little bit guilty about being here, a little bit bad about, you know, I hate to bother you, but dot, dot, dot. So I think to be able to say something that's the exact opposite is, you know, nonsense, you are actually here because I want you to be here and I'm glad that you are here and I'm glad for our connection. Yeah. Um, I think that would really be very disarming to that feeling of guilt or anxiety and it would feel like you're being embraced by your physician. And I think that must be a wonderful feeling of, of connection and love, which I would extend to being a spiritual experience because yeah. isn't that what, can, what spiritual is that higher level or meaning of the experience of relationship with another? So I have, I have I, a question for each of you. Um, is there something that you do before going into a room that makes it more likely that you will have that quality of connection with the patient? Something you or they would call spiritual or deeply meaningful? I love that question. Nicole, would you like to share? Sure, I can, I can jump in. I think you know, as a trainee in my last year of medical school, and I know that time is always this big topic and being timely, being efficient. And I think as a new trainee, an aspect that I've learned is it's hard to go from room to room and avoid bringing in the experience that you just experienced next door into that room. 
And I think taking the time before walking in to take a deep breath and really recognize that you're starting anew, you're meeting someone new, you shouldn't bring in other patients, other experiences in the hospital, that you really are there for them and that you're going to be that support and you're going to offer whatever you can for them is something that has been helpful. Yeah. This I love is that, Nicole. This Sorry, be Bruce. a spiritual practice. Exactly. I was yeah. going to ask you if you could share that with us, Bruce, because you, you're going to speak about the architecture of the visit. We'd love to hear that about yeah, you were I'd sharing. I'd love to, because it's right. I have the, I, we share the same sensibility. At the core of something spiritual is, uh, is there's a quality of joining. I am not alone. There's a sense mm. that whatever is transcendent, we have the feeling as if we're being spoken to, perhaps. I am here with you. You are not alone. And this is the message of belonging. It's already inherent in all of us because we belong to life. But we forget that. So when you're rushing from room, room to room to room, you want to be with, with that person, not with uh, the, you know, the man that you just left and, and thinking three people ahead. So uh, it's <laughs> an architecture in time. There's five phases. The first is preparation. I stop. I feel my feet grounded as I'm standing before the sanitizer and I bring my attention to my awareness itself and I'm aware of my feet standing on the ground. I feel that pressure. I feel my body and I'm aware of the breath entering in and out of my body. So I'm aware of the sensation of breathing. I can also get metaphorical and symbolic about it at the same time. Breath in some languages also means spirit. This is true in Sanskrit and in Hebrew, as I inspire, inspire, we bring in spirit. Mm -hmm. Here it is from the Latin, you know, mm -hmm. it's as close as our language for describing. And then I feel the sensation of it evaporating off of my hands and imagining it's evaporating away my preoccupations. Exactly. So where does that leave us? In right a peaceful, here. meditative state of the moment. Yeah, I'm right here. Now, by the way, it's taking a lot longer to say all this than the whole preparation takes three breaths, mm -hmm. but it puts me into a completely centered framework to be able to go in. And it's quiet. And now I remind myself, as I enter into the room, may I meet you, my patient, in your world as it is for you and accompany you from there. May I bring a quality of presence that allows you to connect with your source of strength, of comfort, of meaning, whatever that is for you, however that is for you. Whatever time I have, may I be fully present with you. What matters for you in our time together is what matters for me. And may I have the open eyes and heart and mind to recognize and appreciate and respond to that. May I bring all of my life experience, not just my expertise. I lift up my hands. May I be well used. We have moved ourselves from the, the mood of busyness and action and fixing and curing and, and very narrow to a, a different kind of mood that allows for all the same fixing and curing and for much more. It allows for caring. It allows also for mystery, for the unknown, for the not yet that might spill into this moment. There's a lot that's communicated in that kind of way. Isn't that a gift? Isn't that a kind of medicine, all of this, that does not come in the IV? This is why we have to do this. 
and learn this. It's kind of medicine. It's why we said yes to medicine in the first place. And it's why medicine became medicine in the first place to recover and heal. And oh, that, that is wonderful. I think just being present with patients is such a gift. And I'm curious, you know, with the last couple of years with the pandemic and virtual visits, wearing masks, mm. have you found it more difficult to be present? And has anything in your practice changed because of these new regulations? The answer is already in your question, of course. So obviously it has. So the, the question is, so what does that allow for us? And also, what does it take away? So now I'm wearing a mask and I put the mask over my face and my lips come out muffled or I don't hear somebody as well. And that's when we're in face-to-face. And what about when I'm not even face-to-face and I'm picking up the phone to contact, you know, I can't be face-to-face. So it's challenging me to learn other ways of being present. Same principle. I prepare myself when I get on the telephone to join with someone. As I'm, you know, punching in the numbers on my cell phone, I'm joining and crossing the the threshold. I'm already, I've already prepared myself. I'm in a certain sense, I embrace you. I'm here with you. I love you. Even in unspoken way, I say, oh, hi, this is uh, Chaplain Bruce. I'm just calling to check in and see how you're doing. Maybe they know me or don't. And so we're, we're learning new ways of, but it's the same principle. We prepare ourselves, we cross a threshold, we join, we accompany. I listen for what matters most. I allow for silence. It's a way of being with people. I'm listening also for what I can offer. Now in spiritual care as a chaplain, I have different ways of being that I can pivot to. I could just be a friendly sort of visitor, like a friend and listen, be there in an emotional way. I could also be a guide like a teacher. I could be, you know, and give advice. I can also be a ritual person and offer prayer or, or ritual. Sometimes I, I'm called to be an advocate, you know, and I'm going to go out and speak on behalf of this because, damn it, this is not right. You want to have an end. Your mom wants to have an NG tube. Here we are in the coronary care unit. Your mom doesn't, you know, she speaks Russian, not so good English. And she's got heart failure and she's dying and she wants an NG tube so she could be fed and the doctor doesn't want to give it to her because he thinks, and I understand that, he thinks that it's going to cause aspiration and make things worse. And besides, it'll just delay the inevitable. You know, and and for most people, that's right. and, And I understand that, but she wants it. So I ask her, why is this important? And then I discover this lady grew up in the Ukraine in World War II. The uh, Nazis came, they lined everybody up at a big pit at a place called Babi Yar, and they machine gunned them, and they fell into the pit. She didn't tell me that, she just said the word Babi Yar, and I knew the story. And somehow she survived as a young girl, and she, she swore to herself she was never going to starve of famine like everybody else who survived and later died of famine. She was not going to do that, and she made her daughter promise her when I die, when my time comes, do not let me starve. So that's what the NG tube meant. And I got that. And they were not in the position to be able to say to the head of the coronary care service, we insist. But I found a way to do that. That was my role as an advocate. So we, you know, this listening and responding, but we come in responsible, response able in a variety of different ways. And that's something we can reflect on and design for ourselves. 
I love that. Bruce, thank you so much for sharing that story. That just speaks so much to listening for the meaning behind the words. You know, yes. you know what yes. is the meaning behind, oh. which is really the essence of, you know, not what am I saying, but what am I what am I meaning? Uh, what is the emotion? What is the feeling behind the words that I speak? And I love that you shared that. And we just have a few minutes left to go. I'm so grateful for the highlighting of the point of looking for the chief concern. What is the concern that the patient has about this symptom as opposed to the complaint and going directly to the diagnosis? You can do both at the same time, basically, that hear the complaint, think of the differential diagnosis, but also hear the concern and the meaning behind the experience that the patient is having and having that all come together in you as a person and bringing that to the other. I, I just really so appreciate this perspective and, and the architecture of the visit that you've shared. In just the last few minutes that we have with you, which we would love to have you again for another interview when we have more time as well. But in this visit, could you just help us know more about what sustains you and how does that, how can that lead to your advice to others as well about what might sustain us? The minute you utter, you say what sustains you and in the way that you did it, right there is enough. Just, I just want to reflect to you asking me that question. I'm just mm. like, wow, mm. to hear that. It's like, oh, I met, you know, I, I'm feeling like, you know, loved and cared for and that I matter. And, and those are words that I'm putting to the feeling that just washes within me the minute you say that. So I just need to observe the phenomenon of asking that question itself. Wow. In that way. Yeah, it's a wow. Mm -hmm. It's very simple and it's a wow and it, it's good medicine. And I, you know, I want to finish, you know, we finished this podcast with as someone who is entering residency very soon. Um, I'd love to hear if you have any advice for medical trainees who are beginning stages of their career. I do. It's to remember why we said yes to medicine. That's a touchstone. And that's because we've said yes to medicine, that allows us to be colleagues with others. We're not in this alone. We've all said yes to medicine. Like, look at, look at me, Nicole. I got like no hair on my head anymore. And I'm, you know, I don't know how many decades older. We're, we are not peers, but we are colleagues. There really is a sense of camaraderie. We said, yes, we are the people. We recognize ourselves as the people who are going into the suffering. We said yes to put ourselves in the way of suffering. Like, like a Marine puts himself in, the, in, the, in harm's way. We put ourselves in suffering's way on behalf of healing, on behalf of life. That is who we are. And, and, it, and that begets a being of service. We're, so we're in good company that way. And, but we, we'll forget it and we need to remember it. And so let's just find, you know, find people like each of us on the call and to remember that. I love that. And thank you so much for being present with us today and teaching oh. us how to be present with our patients. Okay. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for tuning in today. And allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, and Catherine Chan. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws, and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.